0: Opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News.
1: The reality is the old order in the Middle East, where the United States was a guarantor of certain countries, it's died because the fact that it was not sustainable beforehand. Regardless if it suited people's preferences, it just was fractious and it was not going to work.
0: Saudi Arabia and Iran are vying for influence in the Middle East and beyond. There are many ways to look at the conflict, a religious rivalry, a political struggle, or simply an economic one. This week on War College, we speak with an expert on the region who explains that none of the popular narratives are exactly right. He also helps us look ahead at what's likely to be the next phase of the battle.
2: You're listening to War College, a weekly discussion of a world in conflict focusing on the stories behind the front lines. Here's your host, Jason Fields.
0: Hello and welcome to War College. I'm Reuters opinion editor, Jason Fields. And I'm Matthew Galt, contributing editor with War is Boring. Today, we're talking with journalist Murtaza Hussein about Saudi Arabia and its recent diplomatic split with Iran. Murtaza, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Can we start off with just the basics? Can you explain what's behind the uh, split between Riyadh and Tehran?
1: Well, uh, Riyadh and Tehran have been involved in a long-running Cold War in the region, which has played out in Yemen and Syria and other proxy conflicts throughout the Middle East. Unfortunately, it seems like over time this conflict is escalating, And the recent execution of 47 political prisoners, including uh, Sheikh Nimr al-Nimr, has uh, really ratcheted up the tensions to a heretofore unprecedented level. And you've seen retaliatory actions in Iran, not by the state per se, but by non-state actors against the Saudi embassy, which has led to a severing of diplomatic ties. So there's now a very real possibility this Cold War could become a hot war, although indications from both sides are that's not their intention.
2: Who are these political prisoners exactly? Can you kind of explain who they are and why they were executed?
1: So it's uh, the nature or the identity of these prisoners is one of the very interesting points of this uh, recent uh, flashpoint in the sense that Sheikh Nimr al-Nimr was a very influential and widely revered Shia religious figure in Saudi Arabia in the Shia regions as well as in Iran. And his execution is very provocative because he had great ties to Iran and he was widely uh, respected. And he was executed, but alongside him there were 44 other prisoners who were not Shia Muslims. There were Sunni Islamists, some of them were Al-Qaeda-linked figures, and they were executed alongside of him. And when he was executed, it was portrayed as a terrorism prosecution, whereas, you know, he really was not a terrorist by any stretch. He was a popular leader. He had much more in common with the revolutionaries of the Arab Spring than he did with Al-Qaeda or any of these groups. And they sort of lumped him in together with those individuals to say, well, we're cracking down on terrorism Whereas, by any stretch of the imagination, he did not fit that category. So Saudi Arabia is trying to characterize his execution as security issue, when in reality it's more about uh, suppressing their own uh, religious minorities and also antagonizing Iran further in their conflict.
0: Am I remembering right that Shiites actually make up something like 15% of the Saudi population?
1: They do break up uh, around the low 10 figure of the Saudi population. More importantly, though, even they're concentrated in the areas where uh, oil resources are, and they have not seen a fair share of those resources. So not only are they a significant minority, they are living in strategic areas of the country. So their political status it becomes even more difficult to ameliorate because there's the possibility from the Saudi perception of Although it hasn't really been something which people have been advocating of separatism or foreign influence in those regions, which are very economically vital to the country, uh, which is where the Shia population happens to be concentrated.
0: Is Iran actively working on behalf of the Shia inside Saudi Arabia?
1: This is the allegation of uh, the Saudi government. Iranian Shias will very vociferously deny it, and Sheikh Nimr al-Nimr vociferously denied it. And notably, he took positions which were at odds with the Iranian government in the situations such as Syria, where he spoke out against the government of Bashar al-Assad. So the characterization of all these groups as being Iranian proxies has been something which their opponents have been attempting to do, including in Yemen with the Houthis. But uh, it does not necessarily the case. But I fear that, uh, or I think that's reasonable to assume that, in the aftermath of these very provocative actions, they might actually have the effect of driving Saudi Shias closer to Iranian influence, because Iran will act as their only protector in the face of an oppressive state. So it could be a self-fulfilling prophecy, even if it were not the case beforehand.
2: All right, you you compared this uh, at the beginning of our conversation to a Cold War that has suddenly gotten hot. So you don't see this as just another small step in a conflict that's kind of been going on since 1979. This is something new.
1: I mean, I hope it does not go hot. It's becoming more uh, contentious as time goes on. Both the Iranian and Saudi leadership have indicated publicly that their intention is to avoid what would surely be a catastrophic conflict between the two countries if were to come to outright conflict. I think most likely you'll see an intensification of conflicts in Yemen and Syria, which will become more intractable because of the uh, fact that Iran and Saudi Arabia remain at loggerheads. You know, if it were to come to that, I don't think it would would come to a hot war per se, but uh, were that to be the case, I think everyone could recognize how disastrous and how, uh, you know, unpredictable such a conflict could become. And I think that it would be very much in the interest of the United States and other countries to use whatever influence they have to prevent that, because it would be disastrous to uh, economic interests, as well as the stability of the Middle East and those countries, which still remain stable.
0: Does the U.S., which has been an ally of the Saudi government for many, many decades, so does the U.S. have any kind of real influence at this point to hold Saudi Arabia back from war or ratcheting things up any further?
1: Well there are many competing opinions on this question. On one hand, Saudi Arabia remains a close ally of the United States. there are close political and economic ties and really these ties are at the elite level because uh, that's where Saudi Arabia's influence is in the United States. Saudi Arabia from their perspective they feel they fear that the United States may be pulling back from its relationship or not being so willing to guarantee its absolute security or absolute interests in the region. And, you know, I think that that's a fear which it's not particularly well-founded, and I'm sure they have their reasons, but they see that uh, Iran coming in from the cold to a certain degree with the nuclear deal and the prospect of outright U.S. confrontation with Iran seeming more and more remote. And for that reason, Saudi Arabia, including under new leadership, younger leadership, Mohammed bin Salman, they're acting out more aggressively in the region. And unfortunately, I think most of these actions are relatively brash and inept. And I don't think that this war in Yemen is serving their interests. And I think maybe it's they're acting out of frustration over their failure to achieve their goals in the region. But ultimately, if they were to lose that relationship with the United States, or if it were to be downgraded significantly, There's not really much way to... uh, I don't think it's coming back. And the the reality is the old order in the Middle East, where the United States was a guarantor of certain countries, it's died with the United States' acquiescence. And it's time for a new security infrastructure to be built, which includes major countries like Iran, because the fact that it was not sustainable beforehand, whether regardless if it suited people's preferences, it just was fractious and it was not going to work. And now we need to have a new architecture, which includes Iran, Saudi Arabia, and others, with the United States at the helm of it.
0: Well, so it's not like Saudi Arabia and Iran have never worked together, right? I mean, OPEC, they're both members of OPEC,
1: right? Right. I don't think that they have an inexorable conflict. And even this issue, the religious issue, I think that's something which flares up from time to time, but it's done so most often for... It's a a choice. It's for cynical purposes or it's for populist uh, sentiment. But I don't think they're inevitably... Enemies, And I think there's a role for the United States to play in helping to uh, reconcile them if they choose to do so.
2: Let's, let's talk about the role of the United States in the alliance between Saudi Arabia and the U.S. for a minute. Would you consider Riyadh a bad ally, or do you think they have been a bad ally to the U.S. in the past? What's the best mattress for you? Well, if you're an egg or a kitten, check out the competition. But if you're a human person put your body on a Nectar mattress. As well as award-winning layers of comfort, you can sleep easy knowing you got incredible value. Mattresses start at just $499, and you get hundreds of dollars in accessories thrown in, as well as a 365-night home trial and a forever warranty. Go to Nectarsleep.com.
1: Well, you know, it's a very complicated question because... like. Uh, Like I said, the United States and Saudi Arabia, the profound ideological differences, the profound uh, differences on the ground. But at the elite level, they've been very close allies. Saudi elites and American elites are thoroughly uh, uh, infatuated with each other and have been for a very long time. So, I mean, there are things which have happened in Saudi society or private individuals or even individuals in government which have been adverse to the United States undoubtedly over the course of decades whether either directly or indirectly and on the other hand there are things which they've worked together on and they've supported each other on uh, at a government to government level so i think it's a very uh, it's a very complicated question i would say that the most important thing is to say that the united states and saudi arabia should not become enemies it should not become to the point where they lose influence with each other and we have to look at the basis we have to build a more constructive relationship that addresses you know addresses what's going on holistically in Saudi Arabia and addresses sort of the contradictions in this alliance as it exists today. And it ameliorates Saudi insecurity about certain issues in the region. We have to say, well, Iran is not going to be at war with the United States. The United States is not going to wage economic war with Iran. But we're still going to guarantee your security and we're going to make sure that the your territorial integrity is guaranteed the same way that has to be done with Israel now because Israel has a very similar uh, perspective on what's going on and to prevent Israeli actions which could be very destabilizing, the United States has to be able to act as a guarantor to its interests, which is the interests of everybody, its interests of Iran, its interests of all the countries in the region, that people do not feel so insecure that they begin acting in ways which are irrational or belligerent.
0: You mentioned the elites of the United States and Saudi Arabia knowing each other well, but certainly seems like there's a lot of fear in the American public of Saudi Arabia and potential links to terror. It's not all very well reported, but there's certainly lots of articles out there talking about how Saudi money, whether it was official or unofficial, has gone into helping ISIS. So there's a lot of suspicion there. Do you think that any of it's justified or...
1: Oh, I I think it's absolutely justified. I think it's become almost a cliche to point this out, but on 9-11, the overwhelming majority of the hijackers were Saudi, but the countries which were invaded after Saudi was never, you know, it was never even a question of invading Saudi Arabia for reasons which, you know, the American public was not really privy to. Like, it just became like a de facto, like, that's not even on the table. Because the fact is that the, the elite relationship is quite divergent from popular views... Uh, certainly in the United States and to a degree in Saudi Arabia as well too of uh, one another and I think that that gap is a reflection of a number of dysfunctions in uh, American politics and it's a gap which needs to be closed because I think unfortunately if there's one country in the world and I don't think necessarily there is one country in the world to be blamed for the modern phenomenon of uh, Sunni Islamic radicalism it would be Saudi Arabia they're responsible certainly in Pakistan for a uh, funding groups which have uh, wreaked incredible havoc on that country. They've funded uh, throughout the world very adamantly sectarian and extremist anti-Sunni you know, their Sunni Islamist quote-unquote groups, which are really have been waging a war against uh, orthodox Sunni Islam as well as religious minorities. And I think that the money all comes back there. And there are WikiLeaks cables mentioning Hil- Hillary Clinton privately, very frankly, acknowledging this. But because of the fact that there's this elite relationship, the uh, popular perceptions don't even come into play. And I I don't know why. Like, after 9-11, there were quite harder questions weren't asked. And the reason is because uh, Bandar bin Sultan was very close with the Bush family. And that's just one example of innumerable to show that these uh, elite powers are very closely intertwined with one another. And I don't think that's necessarily a horrible thing. I think it could be a basis for building a more constructive relationship in the future. But certainly in the past it's been unhealthy, and we need to find ways, constructive ways, to move forward to uh, rein in Saudi behavior on certain fronts and bring it more in line with the interests of the Muslim world as well as the United States.
0: Well, I think I should just say very briefly that there has never been any evidence presented in a court tying uh, anyone in the saudi government or high up even in saudi society with being involved in the attacks uh, on september 11th um and i think oh, also
1: absolutely yeah. uh,
0: okay i just you know yeah, i think
1: yeah. It, um, yeah i didn't mean to suggest that uh, that that was the case it was just the fact that you know from a reflexive like at the time of that you know there was a lot of emotions in the public sphere people were looking for what the return address for this is and the fact that in the public discourse it doesn't come up is just, you know, it's off limits. And it would have been wrong to do that and it would have been wrong to blame the Saudi government because they weren't involved at a high level. And I don't think that uh, even private individuals were involved at a high level. Is just that it's in one indicative factor of the fact that uh, there is just a very grave disconnect between the discussion of Islamic militancy and the countries which actually produce it and uh, which seem to be re- receiving the brunt of its backlash
0: it it is interesting to me in a lot of ways in that the aspects of islam are very tied up with saudi royal legitimacy the saudi monarchy is deeply tied to a very strict sect of of islam right uh, i don't want uh, wahhabism i don't think i'm pronouncing it right but
1: uh, you know, Wahhabism is considered now, although initially it was the term which was self descriptive, it's now considered to be a pejorative. Uh, oh,
0: okay. Well.
1: But, like, I mean, the people, it's like very ambiguous, it's hard to kind of say, but, like, if you were in a Muslim context, would call someone Wahhabi, it's like an insult, like, oh, you're just being, like, sectarian or something like that. Oh, okay. So, but it's like, in a way, it is, like, descriptive because, like, people did describe themselves as that, and it's based on the uh, proselytizing of uh, Abdullah Wahhab. So, uh, if I could, like, uh, like my own thesis of it is basically in the past century and a half or so, there's been a revolutionary movement in Sunni Islam which rebelled against the normative Sunni Islam which existed during the time of the Ottoman Empire and existed in independent centers in Syria and Egypt and South Asia and elsewhere. And it started in the Arabian Peninsula. So, there was that uprising which initially was crushed by the Ottomans and then, it, you know, it revived itself again during the... Uh, time of that uh, empire's uh, dissolution. And it was uh, targeting the orthodox uh, normative Sunni Islam that existed throughout the Muslim world. At the same time, that was happening from below. From above, there was colonialism targeting those structures from above. So essentially, you know, the normative Sunni Islam, which is based on centuries of cumulative jurisprudence on top of one another, has been hugely... uh, eviscerated almost in most parts of the world. And the final death blow was its co-optation by these uh, military states, which arose in Egypt and Syria and elsewhere. Like the Azhar has been a very uh, important center of Sunni Islamic tradition, and now it has credibility shot because it's seen to be tied to these dictators in the country. And so in that context, when that legitimacy is gone from that side, and then, you know, from the bottom you have a very well-funded, oil-backed, state-backed ideology, which was an insurgent ideology coming out of Saudi Arabia. It becomes like that becomes a normative thing. So we're in we're going through a very unfortunate revolution, which I hope that uh, can come to some uh, reasonable conclusion. But uh, I think we're seeing the play out of historical processes which were initiated before colonialism, through colonialism, and to the present day. Do you? think that this ideology
2: can ever coexist with the West at all?
1: It's a very difficult question. I think that, uh, I think that I don't think Salafi jihad is necessarily nor the normative form of this ideology. Maybe, uh, if you would call it Wahhabism or Salafism, I think that the normative values are quite different and they're, they're illiberal. So I think it's not necessarily in conflict, but you may not like each other and it may not, uh, meld on certain issues, and that's not to say it'll be the case forever. The ideologies all evolve, they're just not static, and we're going through a moment, and it's very tempting to view a moment as being, you know, reflective of all time, and I think that with the view to Sunni Islam, this is a very atypical moment for Sunni Islam, and it'll change over time as well too, so maybe in our lifetime it's not going to be, it's going to be a difficult uh, thing to reconcile, but in future generations, you know, even in Saudi Arabia, as critical I am of Saudi Arabia, they're taking steps. They want to reform their society. There's a great, uh, there's a great desire, and they're especially among those people who have gone out in the world and have a view of their country from an objective circumstance. There's a great desire to reform and to uh, rediscover their own Sunni Islamic traditions and uh, reconcile them with modernity. So I'm optimistic. I think that ultimately it's going to work out, but it's going to take a long time. And looking at it through the daily news cycle could be very disheartening, but uh, I think ultimately uh, I'm hopeful that uh, they'll be able to create a version of Islam which uh, coexists and is constructive for the people living in their society.
0: Do you think the confrontation with Iran right now makes that harder? I mean, does it harden both sides of the conflict and their attitudes?
1: You know, absolutely. I think one of the really sad things to see is the uh, skyrocketing of sectarianism in mostly Arab countries, but just throughout the Muslim world generally. And it's a byproduct of these political conflicts. Unfortunately, both Saudi Arabia and Iran, uh, they they have great uh, influence throughout the world, especially, I think, Saudi Arabia, because that massive ability to proselytize and to Give their viewpoint out there so I think and there are real grievances too like uh, the criticism what Iran's doing in Syria is very well founded even if criticisms in other places are not so you know it's gonna be I think that it's gonna get worse before it gets better I don't think it's gonna be a hot war per se but I think that uh, these attitudes are going to continue to harden in the short to medium term and the sad thing is, people are couching it in uh, religious terms, but at the end of the day, this is just identity politics. Like, It's not even an ideology, it's just an identity. And uh, they even create new uh, mythos based on the past, or new symbols and uh, formative stories, which uh, seem to give weight to these ideologies, or these identities, but they're really historically contingent. And I could easily point to many, many different episodes in history which under, undercut them. But you know, at a time of heightened sectarian tensions and heightened violence and, you know, refugee crisis, like, it becomes compelling to some people. It becomes compelling, and it's hard to target that or undermine it when the physical uh, circumstances are so bleak. So until, like, the war ends in Syria, the war ends in Yemen, this is only going to get worse. It's like a running sore.
0: I mean, I know this is asking a lot of you since it's not like anybody else has been able to figure it out, but do you see any way to help in Syria, help bring people back together? I mean, and as you said, I mean, it sounds like it's going to get worse before it gets better, but is there, is there a
1: path that you see? The path I saw was, uh, you know, helping reconcile the various outside parties in the conflict, Russia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, bring them to common terms where they can meet on some uh, level playing field. The really tragic part of the Syrian revolution is that you know, in the most recent uh, meetings in Geneva, there were barely any Syrian representatives. It was mainly the rest of the world, so that's sad. That's it. That's not what they wanted. The revolution really got out of hand to the point where this is how it's being settled, and unfortunately, this recent uptick in conflict between Iran and Saudi Arabia is going to make that more difficult. And uh, it's not like Bashar Assad is an easy person to deal with on his own. He's been very, uh, you know, this is his fault. He, if he just walked away from power. This all could have been diffused at the very beginning. And now that both Iran and Saudi Arabia are feeling more under threat, they're going to harden their positions. And from the perspective of Assad, if he has his backing from his foreign backers, he's going to be less inclined to make any concessions or feel less pressure. And from the perspective of those many rebel factions, which are dependent on the GCC states or Turkey for their backing, and their own ability to negotiate is hamstrung by the conditions of their backers, those conditions are going to become more strenuous than they were now, or more zero-sum. So it's going to be difficult. I don't see... It's. I think that the real tragedy and the real risk of this uptick in Saudi-Iran conflict is not a conflict between those countries directly, but it's more bloodshed in Syria, more bloodshed in Yemen.
0: And then in a way, it actually puts the Islamic State... What you know, even if they're not being supported by either side, it gives them this this free reign. It gives them a safe space to operate from.
1: Absolutely, and this you know, revolutionary history. There have been many states in the world which were viewed as anathema by the entire like the existing order. They were they had revolutionary ideologies. They were brutal, and but they benefited the fact that even though they're widely despised by all their states around them, those states were so busy at odds with one another that they were not able to focus attention on them or unite to confront them and they were able to solidify themselves and that's kind of how Bolshevik Russia was able to establish itself and survive and this uh, conflict between Saudi and Iran is really a Christmas gift to ISIS. It really is unbelievably in their favor but who is going to be committed to uh, uprooting them and the Iraqi army is doing its foremost to do that and along with sectarian militias which their involvement is very troubling for a number of reasons but they're fighting ISIS. But is that able to uproot them from major urban centers like Mosul and Raqqa? It's very difficult to say. It certainly would be easier if every country in the region were focused on that goal, but they're not, and it doesn't seem they're going to be in the meantime. So if ISIS has a chance to survive, this really is uh, this is it.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us for another sobering segment of War College. Murtaza Hussein.
2: it's been a great conversation. Thank you so much for talking to us.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
2: next time on War College.
0: The Israeli army feels it really can't predict what may happen on any of its borders or on any of its fronts. So he's embarking on a massive plan to muscle up the army as a body that will be prepared for anything.